You're listening to the Home Staging Show podcast. I'm your host, Cindy Lin. This is a show where we talk about all things real estate, home staging, and selling a home to live and to sell. Welcome back to the show. This is episode 124. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Home Staging Show. So today on the show, I have Fred Rose, a human resource expert. I met Fred through my business coach, Megan, and he came in and did a talk on hiring. Building our team and diversity in our mastermind group, and I thought that was very helpful. I really love Fred's way of explaining things. He also had a very calming presence, especially when it comes to sensitive topics like approaching diversity issues, which can be a bit of a trigger for a few of us, myself included, because I'm a person of color. And diversity issues in general can be a bit of a trigger. So I thought it would be great to get him on the show and discuss hiring, but also expanding our team. Because I think for most home stagers, myself included, we start out as a one woman or one man show, and then you get really tired because you're really booked all the time, which is a great problem to have. But then you get flustered, you're tired, you're exhausted, and you need help. So you basically just take on the first person you meet that is willing to help you. So that can create a bit of problem because you didn't set a clear expectations on what you need and also what you want. Then you may get frustrated because you feel like your team member is letting you down, or they're not performing the same way you want them to. So hiring, managing people in your home staging business is definitely a fine art. I'm still learning it as well, and I also think it's important to discuss diversity inclusion issues. So we did chat a little bit about that towards the end. For me personally, as a person of color, I really dislike the idea of using diversity and inclusion as marketing buzzwords. And we certainly are seeing a lot of that after last year in the general public, and also even in the home staging industry as well. I see people being brought in as speakers, but they're only brought in for a diversity panel. They're not actually being brought in as for their core expertise in home staging. So I think that in itself is a problem. So things like that can be a little bit of a trigger for me, and this is why I appreciate Fred because he was able to discuss the topics very calmly, but also breaking it down into digestible pieces. And I do think it's important to discuss these issues because our clients are getting more diverse as well. We as business owners need to understand our potential customers so that we can understand them and help them through our staging work. So a clear example of that is. When it comes to staging for Chinese population, so I'm from Taiwan originally. We're really close to China in many different ways culturally. So we actually share a lot of similarities and background and ideas as well. But I see so many misconceptions and stereotypes about staging for Chinese people in the Facebook groups online, and I see really strange comments like, "Oh, for feng shui, like you have to put a vase filled with water to put on the west side of the money corner." That actually doesn't really make any sense at all. Feng shui is incredibly nuanced, and it's a really long study. There's so many different factions and branches. It's not something you can just use a blanket statement at all. It's incredibly personalized. And actually, feng shui in my culture, you also have to match it with the birthday of the inhabitants. So it's really, really nuanced. It's not just using a blanket statement of "Oh, I need to fill a vase with water." It just sounds. Really culturally insensitive and wrong, actually, because you're you're just utilizing stereotypes. Or I've read that oh, you shouldn't stage a bed all white because to Chinese people that is for the dead. I mean, while that is true in the context of funeral arrangements, it's not really so in our daily lives. 
then there's no Chinese people willing to stay in hotel rooms. And I can assure you there are plenty of hotel rooms in Asia use all white beds. So it's really important for you to do your research when you're working with clients who are coming from a different background than you. And don't work off stereotypes. Instead, coming from a place of service and genuine interest in someone else's culture, ask intelligent questions. And Google is great. Google is amazing. Google doesn't judge you for any questions that you search for. So you can actually do a lot of research to understand someone else's culture before you step into their door and start servicing them as your home station clients. And I know topics like this can feel very scary, especially if you feel like you don't have any understanding about someone else's culture. But I do think it's important to do a little bit of work, to do a little bit of research and educate ourselves on the topic. So Frank is incredibly knowledgeable on this. Also, over the course of his career, he has served his employers at every stakeholder level. So in sports term, he's basically gone from being a player at the end of the bench to being a starter and then impact player, then to being a coach and then management. So now he's using all the available resources and knowledge and experience that he have learned to create value in his organization and also find solutions to quote unquote people problems for his clients. His mission is to provide guidance and perspective to leaders, build collaborative and healthy workplaces that support and serve every member of an organization who contributes to their respective communities. So that's also very important for me as well as a value I try to build within my community. And this is why I love having Fred on the show. And lastly, before we start with today's episode, I just want to say thank you to those of you who have left podcast reviews on iTunes. I recently went into iTunes and I read them and I cannot say how grateful I am for you guys. The reviews made me want to cry. I really appreciate all of your feedback and kindness. And thank you so much for supporting my little podcast. It really has changed the trajectory of my life. I never thought I'd get to teach staging internationally and on the internet and using what I do as a way to make an impact in my world. So thank you so much for allowing me to do so through the podcast and through what we do at the school. All right, so before I get super mushy, let's start the show. Hi, Fred. Thank you so much for being on the show today. I'm super excited to have you to have an HR expert. So tell us a little bit about your business. Absolutely. So my company's name is Flightball, which you can see behind me there. I am a community and culture player coach is how I like to approach leadership. And so what that looks like is I've held every role as a stakeholder in a company. So in sports terms, that would be I was at the end of the bench and then I was a starter. So I was a heavy contributor to the why of a company. And then I was a a manager uh, or a coach and I helped to direct people to accomplish that goal, the company's mission. And now I am my own business owner. So I can offer different perspectives from each one of those stakeholder positions to a company. And what I specialize in doing is culture design. So I come into a company, I talk to the leadership of that company, the C-suite, the owner, founder, and we talk about what does your company look like to you? Like, what does your culture look like to you? And we help them. So I am an artist at heart. And so I blend art and science in doing that. And so... We talk about what that culture looks like. We talk about their mission, their vision, their values. And then we talk to the people, a 
of that company. And we say, so this is what we heard from leadership. Is this what you see? And so these conversations are anonymous, so they don't know who it's coming from. So if it's something that they don't want to hear, they can't go back and reprimand anybody for anything that they said. And then we bridge the gap between those two and we actually create the culture that they think in their mind that their company is is an example of. And so that's culture design. And then we have workplace architecture. And so that's creating the environment. It's not just the building. It's not just ergonomic keyboards and snacks in the break room. It's those processes. It's those systems. It's the everyday rules that those folks in the building have to adhere to and how it affects every person in their stakeholder role and making sure that it serves everybody and making sure that it affects everybody the same way. So yeah, once we create that culture, then we create the environment and then we get to the workforce strategy. And what that is, it's blending the business strategy with your talent strategy. So how do we get people in place to do what we need to accomplish our objectives and our agenda as an organization? And what I used to do that is I recently partnered with the Predictive Index. Have you ever heard of no, I've not. No. So the predictive index was started by Arnold Daniels. I want to say he's a fighter pilot and he would go on these missions during World War II. And after the war, they started looking at the analytics of the war. Who did what? What happened? He was 26 years old at the time. And they noticed that every mission that he went on, he had no casualties. And so they was like, let's go find this guy. And so they did some psychometrics. And that was the first time he was introduced to psychometrics. And they wanted to know, like, why no, there were no casualties from this young man's team. And so once he was introduced to psychometrics, it kind of became like his, his life goal was to learn as much as he could about people. So he created the predictive index, which is a behavioral assessment. And what it does is it places people into 17 different categories and it maps out who you are, your work styles, how you operate most effectively, your work style, and then it looks at some of the blind spots that you may have moving forward. And and then he developed some other softwares and things to to accompany the, the talent strategy. So yeah, we blend culture design, workplace architecture, and workforce strategy to create this holistic view of a company and to help them achieve their mission and their objectives and to essentially become a better community, which is what I'm all about is creating community. Yeah, I love that. And I think as a business owner, obviously I'm not like a Fortune 500 company, not even Fortune 10,000. It's a very small business, but sometimes I feel like it's really hard as an owner standpoint that to translate that vision mm-hmm. in for your employee as well. Because sometimes you hire, you feel like, well, this person is the right person for the position, but maybe you don't see eye to eye. Can you talk a little bit more about the culture and also how do you translate that from the owner's vision to the employee or the contractor? Absolutely. So how do you translate what that looks like? It's... Yeah. It's having conversations and it's it's continuously evolving. It's not your culture is like your mission isn't going to change. Your values aren't going to change, but your vision, it may evolve over time. And so how you translate that is you just show up as the example yourself. I'm the leader. I'm the person who has to embody what this company represents. And so in that embodiment and how you implement it into the culture by the systems and the processes that you put in place and making sure that those things, if you want your workplace to be 
a place that's fair. You make sure that whatever process you put in place, it affects everybody the same. And so the culture is simply the expected behavior. So if we say this is who we are and this is what we are and this is how we're going to move forward, it means me as a leader being active and showing up as that person every single day. And so that's the expectation. If I show up and I say that I'm this thing over here and I don't show up as that thing, then the culture is going to be, well, I can create my own culture because this is what he says, but this is what he does. And then there's that huge gap. So, yeah, that's what I do is to make sure that we don't have those gaps is to offer that perspective to make sure that we do adhere to the culture that we say we have. But yeah, as a leader, all it is is being that example. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's why things like employee manual is very helpful because it really sets the expectations of what the rules and regulations that we need to follow and all this stuff. Absolutely. And why is people such an important part in our businesses? Oh, man, we are everything. If people were a watch, if there's anything out of place, that watch doesn't tell the right time. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do. So you need people in the right places doing the right things for that clock to tell the right time and to be consistent in telling the right time. And I always I equate a lot of things to sports. And if you don't have the right people in place, you see the teams that win championships and especially those teams who win championships year in, year out. They have the right people in the organization and they create that culture. So your people essentially become your culture. You know who you are as a person. You have the why of your business. You need people to galvanize around it in a community and get behind it to move it forward. It's very, very hard to do or it doesn't become a movement or a stage for more. It doesn't become a Fortune 500 or a Fortune 100 or a Fortune 1 company without people that get behind. I mean, you see like the behemoths, like the Amazons and the Apples and the Googles. And I think Apple is a really, really good example of this. The Apple versus Microsoft example. I was reading a book called The Infinite Game by Simon Sinek. And he discussed in the book how he one day went to do a talk at Microsoft, and then the next day he went to do a talk at Apple. And he said everything he did at Microsoft, those folks over there were working to beat Apple. And he said when he went to Apple, he was riding in a car with the, an executive from Apple. He was riding in an Uber to the airport. And he told them, he was like, yeah, I did a talk at Microsoft yesterday, and everything that they do is to beat you guys. And I, I must say it was the iPod versus the, I think, the Zoom at the time. And he's like, that thing, they gave me one for free. And that thing, it may knock the iPod out of, out of the water. And he said, I think they have a superior product. And the Apple executive says, I bet they do. <laughs> and that was, that was his response. And what we need to do this differently is because they knew who they were. He's like, yeah. we, are, we are working to be the best company. They're working to beat us. We're working to change. By the time they catch up to us on the iPod, we'll be on to something different. That's right before the iPhone came out. And so, which made all of those technologies obsolete. So having the right people get behind that vision and move the company forward is just paramount. Yeah, I mean, that makes a really good point. I think Apple is one of the very unique companies where they're really just focusing on their brand position. They're totally fine to be different. 
and they just keep working at their own thing and they really kept their competitors out. They just have that blind spot, you know, they don't even look at it. Yeah, blind spots are wrong word for it, but it's I'm thinking about the blinders, yeah, for horses, you know, right, that's right. really keep focused on that vision and keep going at it. They, they have that they have their tunnel vision and they yeah. hire people that get behind this is what we do. We do what we do. Let's do what we do. And we'll look up and we'll see that we'll always be an industry leader because of what we are working to accomplish. And so, yeah, having the people that get behind that and even us, like I see the type of headphones that you have and those, those are Apple headphones. And so we kind of, we work for Apple in a sense. So they have the right people. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's interesting. I think the culture is very different as well. And I think that really trickles down from the top too. Because I used yes. to teach in school, kindergarten, and also okay. up to fourth grade. I've noticed that because we will go into different schools and teach this curriculum. And I've noticed right. that the leadership, when it's very organized, they know we're coming, they're ready for us. Absolutely. There's a structure. And you see the students as well. They're more organized, they're more in control of their own classrooms, you know, mm -hmm. like they're more orderly as well, more polite. Whereas when we travel to school, the school's like, you are here for what? They forgot that we're going to be there. And you can see it in the classroom as well. It's like complete chaos. Like yeah. the teachers have no handle over their students at all. And it's like right. really fascinating to see how the culture just kind of permeate throughout. Absolutely. And I and I also think that comes back to mindset as well, because I think Microsoft's mindset is we are going to be the best thing in this category that's already on the market. But Apple thinks differently. They think we're going to invent the thing that no mm -hmm. one has it yet, that they don't even mm -hmm. know that they need. Nobody thought we we're going to have an MP3 player. People were just like, I'm going to make the best CD player. Right, you know? exactly. And because they invented their own thing and that becomes the trend, they broke. They created their own market in a they way. They created their own market, right. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if you've read that book, Blue Ocean Strategy, but that's exactly what Apple does. I haven't, but I will. So the theory of the book is that there's these two researchers, they look at all these companies and why they're successful. And then they figure out this, this basically analogy that if you want to swim in the ocean, of course you want to be in the blue ocean. Because in a competitive ocean, everybody's cheering each other up. So there's blood everywhere. So that's why it's a red ocean. But if your company position in itself in a unique value proposition, then you're more likely like Apple swim in the blue ocean because you created your own basically piece of land or world or ocean or whatever. And so you have much less competitions and you're also more likely to be able to see clearly in terms of your own path for your company. Right you're not being distracted by all those noise from the competitors. I like that concept. And I think they are, yeah, they're spot on with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so how do we make sure that we can hire the right people in our business and that can understand our vision and we can align ourselves and make sure they do whatever they do best. How right. do we do that? So the answer is in the question, you hire the right people for your business. And what that looks like is we know what we're here to accomplish. I know the roles that I need to accomplish these goals. I know the skill sets that I need to accomplish these goals. Where we differentiate ourselves is, we'll get to talk about it a little bit later on, so I'll call it something different right now, but we call it cognitive diversity. And there's all these different types of diversities, and it's 
hiring people who have that entrepreneur spirit. And so that looks like I own my role. I take my role and I do what you asked me to do. And I solve the problems that I'm asked to solve within the guidelines of my job description. But what I do is I see maybe another problem and I know like my mind is working and I see another opportunity over here. So I come to my leadership and I own this position and I say, look, I'm doing this, but I see this is coming down the pipe. This is the person who is at their house and they're LinkedIn learning. Whenever you talk to them, they're always ordering more books and they are just into the industry that you guys are in. And then if their role is IT, they're always searching for that new piece of knowledge that can help them to break the mold. And so they look for a way to transform their position. And so like you want to look for those types of people that fit the values of your company, that get behind your why, who have their own personal why, but they are at your company because they are motivated by what you are doing and what the company represents and what it seeks to do. And then those folks who, who are always learning, and that's finding the behavioral questions in the interview. What do you do in your spare time? Somebody, not even to say that this is a bad thing, if I, I play video games with a lot of my spare time. So tell me a little bit about that. Why do you play those video games? Well, so it's, it's a lot of strategy involved in those video games. Me and my buddies, we get together. We have a team. I'm the team captain. We have kind of an esports team that we do. And so you get to know, like, this person's an entrepreneur. This person is, they are a leader themselves. And so finding those folks who fit into what you do as a company and who are looking to create something new out of their role than just the confines that you give them. And I think that you have a really good blueprint your talent strategy for finding the right people. Yeah, I'm going through a hiring process right now. And you and I, we met through Megan. And for the listeners, mm -hmm. Megan is my business coach. And I'm in her program. We work on hiring, for example. And Megan is super clear. Right off the bat, we need to establish our company vision, like what our core values. And then also, like, we do this huge roles chart to map out every single role in the company down yeah. to the most trivial kind of job position, but doesn't matter, like everything's complete map out. And so when I'm writing job description, I just look at my road chart, here's XYZ I need to fill. And actually one of the feedback I got during this round of hiring is that people are like, I love your job description, it's so clear. Because Megan really pushes me to map out everything that people can expect when they come into this position. Right. And then also taking the ownership for it as well. And one of the things right. I really like what you said and also what Megan teaches us as well is to empower our employees also. Absolutely. Because I think there needs to be a sense of fulfillment for them mm -hmm. being in the position. Passion is very important for me. That's why I love having a podcast because I interview people like you who are really passionate about their work and I can hear it in their voice. And like you said, like even something you think, oh, playing video game, it's a pastime. But for me, it's actually important to know because if this person really likes strategy video games, that's telling me something. If they're in their own league and he's a leadership position, that tells me something else. And so actually like one of our hiring questions, it's if life is a box of chocolate, what kind of chocolate are you going to be? When I showed this to Megan, Megan was like, what? How would you answer it? Well, it doesn't matter how I answer it. It matters how they answer it. <laughs> 
but even actually that, when we get applications back, there are so many variety of answer what kind of chocolate people want to be. And it tells me actually a lot their thought process and how yeah, they absolutely. the world also. How do they define themselves even by what type of chocolate they describe they are? Right. right. And you're looking for, yeah, those out-of-the-box thinkers. And because you're going to get some answers that are going to probably surprise you. And it gives you something so that's on your application. And so, like, yeah, when you get to the interviews, you can read that back to them. Like, hmm, so you said you were going to be this type of chocolate. I'm really interested to hear what you saw in yourself that and why you want it. So, yeah, I think that's an awesome question. And I may, I may steal that from you. <laughs> no, it's actually really fascinating. I got some really unusual pairings of flavors I never thought of. And a lot of people say they're milk chocolate because they're a team player. And I'm like, that's interesting. I wonder if they Google that. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought that was like a really amazing answer because no chocolate does fit in a lot of different ones. And some people they're like, I'm a dark chocolate hundred percent. Like they're very, they're very sure of what kind of person they would be as a chocolate or what kind of chocolate they would be if they were chocolate. But yeah, it was actually kind of really interesting insight into their thought process and who they are as a person. And that, that gives you another insight. You mentioned if they went and they Googled this, and it gives you a piece of their work process. Like some people are more original thinkers. Some people look for something to get, like somebody to guide them so that it helps you to, if you hire that person, they're going to need a little bit more guidance and me to set the guidelines for them in their role. And then the folks who come up with different type of chocolate you haven't heard of, these are my independent thinkers. I know that these folks will probably go off and I don't need to set as many guidelines for them or micromanage them. So that, yeah, it gives you a lot of different insights whenever you get these like little tidbits of information. So that's super interesting. Yeah, no, I actually love reading hiring applications. There's even some basic questions like tell us a little bit about the founders and the, and also the company. Some mm -hmm. people just straight copy and paste it from our website. And I can tell because I wrote that. <laughs> and then immediately this tells me this is not a good <laughs> candidate because one of the things I want for this position, who's going to be a customer support and also support our students as well, because we're hiring a student concierge, you need to be able to talk like a human being. I don't want you to just copy and paste from whatever right. template I give you. And then the students feel like you're just a robot, like you don't care about me. And so immediately that tells me that this person is not a good fit. Hiring, it can be really tricky. It's almost like a detective game. You Absolutely. have to find all these tiny clues that people Absolutely. left behind. It's an art, probably one of the most important pieces of your company because you, when you add a person to your team, you're not just adding a person to your team, you're changing that team. That team becomes a different team when you add a different personality, when you add a different set of skills, when you add, they, they are an entity in themselves. It's kind of adding, and I didn't say this in, when I met you the first time, but you are a venture capitalist as a business owner. And your portfolio are all these companies, which are the people that you're hiring. Everybody comes with these skill sets and these problems that they can solve. That is your roster of companies, your entire roster of employees. And so I think you have to treat it like that. Like there's so many different things that you need to take into account. And like venture capitalists don't just go out and say, look at the surface of a company. Like they look at every single thing in the company. They look at the past of that company. They look at, all right, how does this thing project who's in leadership in this company? So what is that person 
who's coming into my company, like what are they all about? Like, let me see their values. And so he's yeah, speaking about all these little intricacies and making a higher as important as it is, is you, you kind of have to get these things right, especially if you're a small business, because especially the financial toll that you take for a bad hire, being an early stage company can be catastrophic in a lot of cases. Yeah, I think a bad employee especially can cost the company a lot of money. It can damage reputation as well. I think that's the other thing too. When you have employees, they represent your brand and your company. And if they're not happy and then they go out and the client senses that, Mm-hmm. They're going to think that there's something wrong with your company. With your company, right. It's yeah, not something wrong with that person. That's a reflection of the you. company. Yeah. Exactly. And then also, like, what if they break stuff? What if they steal stuff? Or they steal mm-hmm. your client? That can all happen. So. I have a quick story. You want to hear it? Yeah, let's hear it. All right. So I was recently, in the last year or so, working with the company. And I was, in addition to my human resources director role, I was a project manager. And so I was managing a project where the previous project manager was the boss's son and my direct supervisor's son. I found out that he was stealing time from and charging the client. And I took that information to his mother, my supervisor, and I said, like, look, you spent 30 years in this industry building up your reputation. It takes one thing. Like just one instance of somebody being dishonest in your company. If you send so many people to, like this is a long-standing client, it takes one time for all of that to go away. People don't remember what you did great for 30 years. They remember that one time that that person stole a few thousand dollars in time from them. And so you have to take that into account. And it's not a reflection of him. It's going to be a reflection of you because you yeah. sent that person here. So, yeah, we have to be mindful of who we bring on to our team because they are a representation of your brand. So what do you think are some of the most common mistakes people make when they're hiring people? Ooh, I will give you, I'll try to give you three. Give me all of them. <laughs> hiring for familiarity. This person went to that school. This person oh, is kind of like me. Or oh, it's in hiring based on bias. That's something that you you get into. Or hiring friends and family a lot. I see that a lot. And it backfires. Nepotism backfires so much of the time. You have no idea. Hiring based on being safe. Hiring somebody because on paper they look safe. Hiring without all the facts. And looking at a candidate, if you hire somebody and you don't do that, background check or you you know you miss something it's making sure that hiring not based on cultural fit that person comes into your company they're unhappy one bad apple can spoil the bunch they're on a team of people and they're toxic i've seen cases where folks leave a company based on somebody that was added to the team and they were a bad cultural fit so that's another thing there's so many missteps so you mentioned that not getting all the facts. So what are some of the things we're going to do in the hiring process to make sure we get all the facts? Because I don't know, I never actually ran a background check on employee. Are we all supposed to? Is that something we do legally? A background check is 100% legal. And there are companies who run background checks for you. And that's just to make sure people don't have it. 
outstanding warrants. You have, I mean, you have sex offenders. You have all these different types of people. Everybody has a history just to make sure that those folks, not to say that you shouldn't hire folks who have a record. It's just knowing the whole person and being able to address that in an interview. And I'll say I had one instance where I was in the process of hiring a young man. He had four DUIs. He was former military and developed an alcoholism problem. And he had four DUIs. And in the background check, it told me that. But in his interview, he told me completely upfront, like, hey, I have four DUIs. I just want to let you know I've been in counseling for the past three years. I've been sober. So, yeah, that's very important. And it's just, would you rather be thorough on the front end or would you rather deal with the consequences and the repercussions on the back end? So talking to all the necessary people that you need to talk to, making sure that your interviewing process, you're asking all the necessary questions that reflect what you want to know as a company and what they'll be doing in their role. So that, yeah, it's just covering all your bases. And so one thing that mitigates that problem is to involve more stakeholders, not just the leadership, not just the hiring team. Who else is this person going to be in contact with? Who are going to be this person's peers? If you have multiple of the same role, how is this person? So like, what do you do on a day-to-day? And how do you interact with other people who do what you do or in other departments? So I know what this person's going to have to do so I can relay that message and I can ask them about how those interactions are going to go once they are a part of the company. Yeah, so in our hiring process, we actually have test projects. So when I had a staging company, when I was hiring an assistant, I actually, depending on their role, say if they're going to be in a warehouse helping out, I actually have them organize for 15 minutes, the Mm -hmm. warehouse, and then see how they react and what their instincts are. I mean, organizing, putting things in bin, it's not rocket science, but there is still kind of a madness to the method, you know? Like if you're just shoving things into the bin, that is no good to me. But if you are organized, because we have a pillow room, for example, the staging, we have, I don't know, hundreds of pillows in different colors. And you can see if they're actually putting it by colors, how I instructed them to be, and they're able to work in the warehouse without issues. Because I think it's also a mutual interview. That's how I think about it. Because they're also feeling if it's the right position for me. So when I do the test project, I'm always like, this is exactly what you will be doing when you get hired. And so if you don't like this task, that for sure you're not a good fit. And so sometimes I give them actually little instruction and see how they work themselves out. And then it just depends on what the candidate is applying for. But I think having that test project for them is actually very telling as well. But it also gives them a really good idea of what to expect when they're actually in their job. Absolutely. It's a 360. lets you see how they are. It lets them see who the company is, how they'll be working, the space they'll be working in. I think that's brilliant. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I know you use some sort of assessment to find out employee Mm -hmm. strengths and weaknesses and also help them identify areas of growth so that you can really empower them when they get into the company. Can you tell me a little bit about that process like? So what are some of the assessments that we can use as small business owners to really find out how can we help them amplify their strengths and really do great work in our company. Absolutely. So there are a few that I, and I'm still in the process of, I'm, I'm an avid learner, so I'm still gathering information on different entities, different software products, different people. The one that I use is the predictive index. There's also the disk assessment. We there, use that as well. Okay. Yeah. The disk assessment is really good as well. I don't know if you are familiar with the entity culture app. 
I've heard of it. Yeah, I've never tried it. We use this because my business coach at the time recommended it. And then so we just yeah. been using this. Now we use things that are on the internet, like 16 personalities and also yeah. Strength Finder is really good as well. It's really interesting. We use both of those tools as well. Yeah, I, I think everybody's heard of the Myers-Briggs. There are implicit bias tests. Harvard has a free implicit bias test that's online. And so what I like to do is I like to talk to, obviously, business owners and say, all right, so what do you think would fit your culture? Like what type of test would fit your culture or like what things within the realm of what you do? I suggest people doing what fits them. Don't go outside of what you do or do your research. There's a gentleman over there in London. His name is David Green, and I forget who exactly he works with. And he has a really, really good podcast. And I'll have to get you the name of it because I can't think of it off the top of my head. But he does a lot of interviews on his podcast with folks who are in the HR technology space. And they are working with business leaders to find what fits their culture. So, yeah, there's a lot of different avenues and ways you can go. Yeah. And I think one of the things is we are trying to figure out what their behavior is and also what really our strengths are. So it's like strength finder is really interesting because... Me and my sister, we both went to this workshop and we both did Strength Finder. And it turned out we had completely opposite of working style. And so obviously that affected our communication. Because me and my sister also butt heads all the time. It's a sister thing. And then when you work together, yeah. it amplifies it even worse. And we also work So y'all are sisters and you work together. And we also live together at the same time. So oh, wow. get away <laughs> from each other. And sometimes we just have the stupidest fight. I mean, like as sisters do, you know, how siblings are. But right. yeah, and then so the strength finder test was actually very eye-opening because we found out, okay, actually that makes sense. I've been communicating the wrong way with my sister and vice versa. And that's why we're just always fighting over the stupidest thing and then can't just even break apart from that. So yeah, so I think it is kind of fascinating when you dive into the more behavioral kind of stuff as well. Yeah, and so that's... What the disc, I mean, not disc assessment, I'm sorry, the predictive index does is it, it shows you like where you fall in these 17 profiles and lets you know who you are. And then it lets you know, like, here are some blind spots. Here's some folks that you may not agree with the most, but it also offers you some suggestions on how you move forward in addressing those problems. And I also want to talk about diversity and inclusion for a little bit, because I Absolutely. think Especially in today's world now, I think with what's happened earlier this year and the whole BLM movement, people are now really focusing on diversity and inclusion. But I also mm -hmm. hate that it becomes kind of like a marketing buzzword. Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I still, I mean, I still see like I, once, once the BLM movement really was pushing forward during COVID, people were just like, oh my God, we really need to be aware. And then so now all these companies come out, we're going to pledge to be diverse and inclusive. But the thing is, it feels like the minority person, the BIPOC person is the token minority mm -hmm. still. And I see that a lot as well within our industry too. Like a lot of bigger associations, they are using diversity as a marketing tool, which really pisses me off, to right. be honest. So how do we address that actually as a business so that people don't feel like they're of diversity higher or it's like we are in a way discriminating between different communities just because we want to be diverse or quote unquote inclusive? So that hard work is on the shoulders of the business owner. And 
What I mean by that is I'm bringing people into my company. This is the role they're going to fill. These are the skills that they'll need. This is what I'll need from them as far as a personality. I'm bringing in business leaders need to understand and be able to convey the message of I'm bringing you into this company because of who you are. You attach to the why of this company and what you do. Like you bring incredible value. Everything else that I get is, is sauce on the top. And so if I get that, your cultural experience and helping to solve problems, that's just sauce on the top. And so we have to get away from, and, and it's, it's very difficult because we have centuries of evidence of doing it a certain way. And yeah. now we have to go and we have to look at it. And it's not that I don't see color, but I have to see the whole person. And what is this whole person going to bring to the company? We have to be able to challenge ourselves and step up for those folks and be able to say and honestly say, be transparent and say that, hey, like I need you for who you are, you attaching to my why and what you do, the value that you bring to this company. I'm not looking at you as you're just a diversity hire because we see so many folks who are, we do see some people that are doing that. The only roles I see a lot of black women are getting as the chief of anything, or they're the chief of diversity. And so you put a black yeah. face in the front of diversity. No way we can be racist at this company or no way. Yeah. That we, can, we got our token, know, Asian, like Asian token black person. Exactly. Token Latino. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody who's really good at sharing that message is Kay Fabella, K-A-Y-F-A-B-E-L-L-A. She's really good at sharing that message because she's Filipino and she's a woman. And so she does a really good job of talking about it. And Torin Ellis, T-O-R-I-N-E-L-L-I-S. He does a really good job in the DEI space. And so those are two of the folks that I look up to in this space and approaching those issues because it's going to take those companies that are at the forefront and or moving other companies to the forefront that look at diversity as an ongoing process, as an evolving process, as something that companies need, not something that I can just say to attract people and get them in here so I look better or it's something that I can put on my website to attract people or to say, look, I did that. That was that one-off. It's not a one-off initiative. It is an ongoing process and changing how we work across the globe. It's not just an American problem. It's not just a European problem. It's not just an Australian problem. It's a world problem. It's very exclusive in the workplace and we reserve certain roles for certain people and we don't include everybody. And that's not just ethnicity. That's religion. That's gender identification. It, 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 that's neuroability. It's so many different things that are encompassed in that. And we have to make sure that we work on making sure that everybody has those opportunities and we become a better world community. Yeah. And I think most of the time when people say diversity and inclusion, um, when you think about race, but it's actually mm -hmm. more complicated than that. Like you said, there's gender issues. There's also disabilities as well. Because my father has long-term illness, so he's in a wheelchair. And when you have a family member or you yourself is disabled, you feel the world treats you differently. Absolutely. Even just by the way, you know, doors are positioned, you know, all this different stuff that you do notice. But the thing is, unless you're in those 
position yourself or you have someone really close to you experiencing that, you don't really know and you don't know how that right. might feel. Right. So that, that's also tricky because I think our clients today, especially in real estate, it's getting more diverse as well. We're getting more international clients or more culturally diverse clients within our neighborhood. So how do we work with other people from other cultures? I ask this is because I think, for example, I see a lot of misconception about what home staging should be like for Chinese people, for example. Like I've read stereotypical things like, oh, Chinese people like red, so just put in a lot of red stuff. I mean, if that's true, then every Asian cities you go to will be covered in red. Or I've read things like, oh, Asian people don't like white beds because white is associated with funerals. But if that's true, then no one will live in a hotel because hotels really only have white beds. So you hear kind of crazy things like this. So when we are in touch with a client, for example, who is from another culture, or we need to create a home that appeals to this other demographic, what can we do on our end to make sure that we are not practicing stereotypes, we're not just perpetuating the stereotypes? Right. Ask those questions. Be open and upfront because we know it's not going to change until we all have those conversations. You're not going to be able to be silent about it. And what it sounds like is, what do I need to serve you? I'm a black man. You're an Asian woman. It's what do I need to serve you? I need to understand, and it's using your God-given abilities in a lot of ways. It's you were given the gift of sight, so you need to be able to observe how does this person work in their day-to-day? What kind of rituals do they have when they come in? If I have a room for prayer in my office building, it should be able to serve people who are Buddhist, people who are Christian, people who are Muslim, people who are Jewish. Like it should serve everybody. And so it's, yeah, it's having those uncomfortable conversations and look, I don't know. And it's saying, and it's being vulnerable enough to say, I don't know. Can you please help me? And then using that other guy that we have is to listen and to create that open dialogue and to be able to solve those problems with the exchange of information. But it doesn't get anywhere if we don't begin to talk to each other and we don't listen to what each other is saying. And once we get that information, it's having data is just, that's knowledge. And we always hear that knowledge is power. And it's not knowledge that's power. It's the application of that knowledge. Because I can know something and not do anything about it. And that doesn't give anybody any power. It doesn't help anybody. So to gather that knowledge and to make those observations and to listen and to understand, then turn what's said into actual solutions and actual ways to, to help people in the workplace and overall the community. Because I think as business leaders, we affect so much, like you affect the person who comes to be fulfilled every day, who has to put food on the table for their children and for their families. And then if they're able to do that, they're able to bring their entire self to work. They go home, they're able to help their kids with their homework. They're a lot happier. They cook dinner, they get a good night's rest and they're up the next day and then they go into other parts of society and, and it's infectious and it keeps moving. So yeah, we have a really, really big responsibility as business owners to create places and environments that people want to come to and they're fulfilled and they're getting everything that they need so that it can carry it into the world at large. 
Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of dialogue and education is important. And I think sometimes the dialogue people feel, oh, it's us against you, but it's not really. No. You know, I think it's it's to create that understanding and an understanding what the issues may be. Because if we don't tell people how we feel, they won't really know how you feel. And even as a person of color, my experience in regards to diversity is they're going to be very different than yours. I think Asian communities and Black communities, we sympathize, but our issues can also be very different. And so that experience may be really different. And even within the same minority group can be very different as well. And so there's no one size fits all solution. (laughs) I think now that's what people think is what's happening, that like you said earlier, you see a lot of people who are hired who are person of color, they're in the diversity role. Mm-hmm. It just, that's the only part of the company that has that position. Or I see it in conference lineup as well. There's all these topics on home staging and then there's a diversity panel and all the BIPOC people in that group, it's all on the diversity panel. Right. And I think that is in a way problematic. But also, I don't know, I think it's a double-edged sword sometimes because I think a friend of mine is just like, I don't want to be a diversity hire because we're talking about being invited to speak. And then he was mm-hmm. just like, a lot of times I get, because he works in fashion, which is also very criticized for being very predominantly white and also, actively, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and also very actively discriminating a lot of different populations. And he's Indian and British. And then he was like, you know, I, I hate being the token minority person on the panel. You're on the platform with a microphone exactly. in your hand. Exactly. Like you have more power. So in that situation, I'm happy to be a diversity speaker. I think one of the things we look at too is that we all have different points of view and we all have different experiences. Mm-hmm. And when you have a more inclusive and more diverse community, you can find out more about other people's culture. You can find out right. more things and get educated right. on different issues. But also the burden is on us because I think all the stuff was happening with BLM. I feel like as a person of color, by default, I became the person to explain racism to my white friends. But I'm also kind of like, you know, you can Google this, you can read books. I'm no expert just because I'm Asian. Black people's issues are going to be very different than the Asian women's issue. I can't speak for Black people, even though I, I have been discriminated based on my skin color. So I think, yeah, we do have a ways to go with diversity. But I think now at least there's some sort of push for more education and more conversation that is productive. I think that is nice. This is a very weird time, but it's offered an opportunity and it's challenged the norm. And what we have to do is continue to press that issue and to continue to challenge the norm because, yeah, like we don't want to fall back into the old way of doing things. And I don't think we'll do that. I think that now that we've approached this barrier, we're all standing at the wall. It's like, how do we get this wall to fall down? And I think people are chipping away at the rocks, but we, we haven't quite hit the piece of, the, of that wall where it just crumbles and it falls down. Now, you said some, some really, really good things is that it is a collective conversation. And it's asking the people who are involved in, in being willing to take that criticism. I know that I'm not perfect. So I'll give you a, a quick story. I used to work at a law firm. And at that law firm, there was a young lady. She was half Latino and half Black. And she was on the partner course. But it was an old South law firm. And they didn't want her to be a partner because they didn't see her value. 
And so she got very, very frustrated. And she went back to Minnesota, of all places, and she joined this woman-owned law firm. And she started up her own division of this law firm. And now she has several lawyers that she's brought into the company. They are on partner track and they are earning upwards of, I think, 20 something million dollars, like for the firm a year. And it's like, it's just a small collective. And so those folks didn't see her value because they saw her skin color first and didn't think it was of value to their firm. And she went elsewhere and was able to show this other firm who gave her an opportunity, the value. And sometimes it doesn't have to be that grand of a of an inspiration story or it's just giving people an opportunity and like your friend who says she doesn't want to be that diversity high or included because i mean at least one it's yeah we need to take those opportunities and be on those platforms because if you're not then they'll fill that spot what you are the one person that they knew that they considered diverse and so they're going to fill it with somebody else and they're going to be people in the crowd who want to hear some different perspective and they're not going to get it because we refuse to take that opportunity yeah i would encourage everybody whenever you have the platform or a platform to use that platform which is what your podcast is doing i don't think i was a diversity guest but <laughs> I don't know. You're not. Well, you're here to speak about diversity. Uh, right. diversity That's just, it just happens to be the subject. But, yeah. Yeah. but to be yeah. fair, though, I thought about this because we now put on an annual conference and I was looking at a lineup as well. And I was just like, wow, it's actually really hard to find BIPOC speakers who yeah. are also in the staging industry. Predominantly, the industry is very white. I'm sorry to say this, but it's true. Yeah. And I think yeah. a lot of times that's yeah. folks who don't know that staging is even an occupation that they can get into. You know how many occupations I didn't know existed? <laughs> 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 I kind of created flight bubble like that. Not that the things that I'm doing never existed. It's just that I'm doing it my own way and creating. Like, I didn't know what home staging was until I met you. Yeah. And so think of, like, all the people of color who... We come from these different education backgrounds and we come from different socioeconomic places. We don't have that knowledge. So I think you have a really, really cool opportunity. Like when you're talking to students and you're bringing them into your businesses, letting those schools that they come from know, like those kids in those schools, like, hey, like I own this business. I think there should definitely be more entrepreneurship should be taught at a lot younger level. Like I think that we should start talking to kids about entrepreneurship in like elementary school as an option and folks who have these different types of businesses need to be a part of those conversations. So kids know like one, there are all these opportunities that I didn't know existed Two, sometimes it's something that somebody created. Like you may have a child, nephew, what have you, the younger cousin and the job that they're going to have doesn't exist today. And yeah, so, and, and I think a lot of it is also seeing people in media or see, yes. seeing because one of the things with mainstream media is that when matters. I representation matters. When I first moved to the States in mid nineties, like you would never see an Asian very rarely. The only famous Asian person on television was Lucy Liu on Ally McBeal, and she basically perpetuates the stereotypes of the dragon lady. 
which was coming from the 70s. And then now you actually see Asian guys being in crazy rich Asian, which is not a great representation of Asian people, but we're not like that most of the time. But yeah, but you it's really rare. It's like really the first all Asian cast movie. Before that, that was Joy Luck Club in the 90s, you know? So it was really, really rare to see that. And when I was putting on the conference this year, the SagerCon, we also did an international home staging awards. And because I want to encourage more BIPOC stagers to apply for the award, I have this coupon code for two extra free submissions. When they emailed me for coupon code, I emailed them back and asked them, what are some of the things that we can do as a school, as a platform to help you to make it easier for you? And most people are like, you know, I'm not sure. But the thing is, it, it would be really nice to see more people like us. Because there's yeah. not actually yeah. not a lot of BIPOC stagers who are visible in the industry. So yeah, and a lot of time is seeing people like knowing that, oh, okay, I can be successful entrepreneur mm -hmm. as a black person, as an Asian person, as a Latino person, as an indigenous Absolutely. person. They just need to be shown sometimes to, mm -hmm. to see that it's possible and not to be in roles or keep perpetuating stereotypes. Right. A friend of mine is an actor. He's also Asian American. And it's funny because the roles he's gotten, he's played assassin on 24. He's played a bunch of executive secretary, basically, for some so terrorist I'm, show. I think of what is the entourage. Or he played... Yeah, or he played a doctor, or he played a person in the lab coat. You know, he played a lot of those things. And so it's not funny because sometimes we, we watch movies that he's in. He was in a zombie movie on Netflix. And then he was saying that, yeah, as a rule, basically, minorities always die first. And sure enough, the first person who died is a minority. It was, in a way, like a systematic way of, as a minority person, being taught that you're always going to be the main character's sidekick or best friend. Mm -hmm. You know, we see that for Black people in mainstream media a lot. They're always the white main character's sidekick or friend. Always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Right. So subconsciously, I think as a minority, you see that. You're like, oh, we will never make it really because it just doesn't seem like it's possible. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really fascinating now that people have that awareness that we need more representation and also more diverse points of view as well. Exactly. And perspective is so very important. And having somebody's perspective who has a different experience than you really helps you to get to, it helps you to see all the angles at which you have a problem and to solve that problem and to know like pain points and different blind spots that that problem may have by getting a different perspective is extremely important. So I think you're right. Yeah, and a lot of it is trickled down and is in a way, unfortunately, systematic. I moved to London for my MA in photography and documentary photography, a lot of times we talk about the gaze. And most of the time, actually, historically, even in big media like New York Times, what they usually do is, or National Geographic as well, they will parachute in white male photographers into these third world countries like Africa and then just take photos of the stereotypical African suffering type of photos and then come back and then put it in the newspaper. But the question is that why couldn't you hire local photographers who have their real point of view? What it is like to be in Africa? What is it like to be an African living in Africa? Not from somebody who is living in America, who has no connection to the place that they're going to and just parachute them in for a week and then they leave. They're essentially tourists that don't really have 
the real point of view, mm-hmm. you know, with the with the place that they're covering. And we are seeing a backlash in journalism as well because of that, because why can't you just save the money and hire someone local and then have them really share the, the real point of view, what is it like to live in their country? I didn't know you were getting your MA in photography also. That's a, that's yeah. a different conversation we got to talk about. I, I love photography. Yeah, actually, this is my second master <laughs> in photography. <laughs> That's the interesting thing, even in with photography as well, like we talk about representation, like how women are portrayed, for example, because historically a lot of photographers are male. And so the way they portray women is we are objectified. And so that impacts how young women see themselves as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of social and economic issues that are intertwined, which I find very horrible but also fascinating but i think the great thing about this year is actually it really opened people's eyes and make them aware of these issues of different representation viewpoints and the gaze and also you know because a lot of times people are like oh my god we can't say that anymore you know like the word oriental for example it's not being used and people are like why you know oriental like what's the big deal but actually historically it's actually a derogatory term. Mm-hmm. It's like the N-word for Asian people when they first moved to America in the gold rush time because that was actually a discriminating word that are being used in a derogatory way. And that's why now people lost that historical context. So they yes. thought, yes. oh, what's the big deal? But actually there is a racist past and there's mm-hmm. actually a lot of racist past in real estate as well. And so it's not that, oh, we can't say that anymore. It's that we are recognizing it was wrong. So we decide not to do that anymore. Right. But I think those are kind of differentiation and also awareness. Like you said, as a business owner, we have that responsibility as well, like within our own company, but also the way we approach our clients. Right. And I, no, that's, that's a really, really good point that it's a changed behavior, right? We realized that, that was a derogatory term that's not used as much anymore. Why? Because that was not acceptable behavior. And so over time, we have worked to change that behavior. So that's what a lot of things, like a lot of what we're working to do within companies is to do just that. And it takes time because that, how many years ago, and it, it has taken that long to get to the point now where it's obviously not removed from the vocabulary, but it's used at a lesser level or at a lesser frequency because of how it affects a group of people and what it means. And so no, I think that's yeah, that's exactly what you're looking to do in creating culture is affect those behaviors the way that you, you're at. Like that's, no, we don't do that. That's absolutely not. And get to the point where this is better. This is how we approach this. And so, no, that's yeah. a really good point. I know. I think company culture is really important because if your employee or your contractor is happy, they're going to be really happy with their client. And the client will think, wow, you really must love this company that you're so happy all the time. So that means that the company is doing something right and they feel like they can trust you as well. This toxic workplace, I definitely experienced a few and it's very, I think it's very draining for the employees. And sometimes you don't even, you're not even aware of it until you left that job oh my God, all this time I'm so unhappy is because actually from the job. I think that helps you as a business owner also because you come from those toxic work environments. And so you know 
what not to be. It helps you to create that example. You may not know what you want to be yet, but you know what you came from and you know what you don't want your company to be for people. And so I think that knowing what not to do is sometimes just as important as knowing what to do. Yeah. So we're at the end of our show. Thank you so much for coming. I just have one last question for you. So what would you be your number one parting tip for homestagers who want to hire their first employee? What would you say is the best practice? Absolutely. So I would say, and it's kind of multi-parted, but it's very simple statements. Know who you are. Know why you do what you do. Know your culture and how you want people to fit into that culture. Continue to be the example of what you want that culture to be, and you'll be perfectly fine. That's great. Thank you so much for being on the show today. That's fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. I had a really good time. Thank you for trusting my voice. So that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to help and support the show, there are three ways to do so. You can leave a review and rating on iTunes. You can share the show on social media, or you can donate to support the maintaining costs for the podcast. You can make a donation through the show notes or on the sidebar of our site. If you haven't left a review on iTunes, please do so. This will help us grow the show and book more guests. If you have any questions, feedback, and suggestions, you can comment on the show notes. You can also find the show notes by going to stagemore.com slash podcast. That's it. Have a fantastic week and happy staging.